You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, we talked about the global diffusion of protests after George Floyd's killing in Western countries reckoning with their own histories and context and racism. This week, we're going to talk about a very specific manifestation of this new international trend. The way in which history and historical statues and naming rights have become a major flashpoint in a variety of different countries in terms of their own modern history of racism and the role that history plays in international politics more broadly. That's what we're going to do today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Morning, y'all. Um, so the the subjects of some of these statues that have started to come down. In the United States, obviously, there's been a, a real focus on Confederate monuments. It's a very obvious target if you're looking to uh, address existing manifestations of the country's racist history. Not to mention a lot of these Confederate statues were put up as more or less explicit threats to non-white communities, a way of reminding them who was really in charge during periods of racial unrest in the nation's history. They aren't just remember history. They actually had a pointed political purpose. But the United States is not the only country, to put it mildly, that has a long history and legacy uh, of racial injustice, uh, colonialism, imperialism, slavery. And uh, this week, there was a major flashpoint uh, on that score in the United Kingdom, where uh, there's a statue of a, uh, a very controversial English politician. He's controversial not because of his political stances, but because of how he made his money, which is trading slaves. So what, what happened? Who is this man and uh, what happened to his statue? Yeah, so earlier this week, uh, Black Lives Matter UK, a group of protesters uh, in Bristol in the UK, pulled down a statue of a guy named Edward Colston. His statue had been in Bristol's city center since 1895, but it's super controversial. He was not a very good person. The Museums of Bristol website describes him as a revered philanthropist slash reviled slave trader, which is a very (laughs) interesting uh, dichotomy to describe him. So Colston was heavily involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, He worked on committees for the Royal African Company, which basically held a monopoly on English trade and African slaves. He was deputy governor of the company. He basically got very, very, very wealthy from the slave trade. 
The reason he was called a philanthropist, he used a lot of that wealth to build things like schools and hospitals and churches in Bristol and, and London and elsewhere. So that's part of why he has his statue up there. So his statue is controversial. It has been for a long time. And, you know, as part of this kind of broader push that we're going to be talking about, a bunch of protesters threw a rope up around the statue's neck and literally pulled it down and dumped it in the nearby water, unceremoniously dumped, and I would say rightfully so. So what's interesting about this is it's broken down in political lines. Uh, Priti Patel, who is the uh, Home Secretary in the UK, which is a job, a very large job responsible for uh, interior affairs in the UK, including, to a degree, internal security, um, has argued that the people responsible for this will be held responsible. And argued is maybe the wrong word. Threatened might be closer to accurate. Meanwhile, the the mayor of Bristol, the, who should in theory be super offended about this if you it was really about local heritage, is actually perfectly fine with the statue going down. He said it was unfortunate the statue was taken down not by official decrees, but thought that it would be better if it was put up in a museum or something like that, or some kind of special display on the city's history, rather than a prominent monument uh, in sort of the center of the city. And I, I think what's telling about this is it gets to the the heart of the argument here, uh, which is broken down largely speaking between conservatives and, and left-leaning forces in a variety of different developed countries. And we'll, we'll go through a few of these examples as the show goes on. But the argument is whether or not monuments to someone in the public square constitute a really important part of historical understanding. That is, do we need to have a statue of Edward Colston or a statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond to be able to remember what happened? Is that a necessary part of our history or heritage in whatever the country is in question? Or is it a way of displaying a set of values, of, of, of holding up someone as a hero or at least someone who is socially valued and respected? And that when someone is a slave trader or a soldier for a slave state, maybe they should they don't deserve that place of honor. And obviously, from that description, I'm much more sympathetic to the second point. But it's interesting that it's it's a it's become a really live controversy in a lot of Western countries. I mean, you could imagine why Colson got all the love he got until just this week, which is the city of Bristol would not exist in its current form, would not have the wealth that it would have if it weren't for him. So the fact that he he holds such a high place in that city is for that reason alone. But of course, you dig under the surface or not even under the surface. I mean, like the thing he did was the slave trade, taking people out of West Africa and moving them elsewhere in other places around the world. It's not like he really did much else. Um, that was his main thing. That is what gave him the money to create Bristol as it was. And he's not a lone figure, right? I mean, there are tons of people. There are Edward Colston's everywhere. There are tons of people who profited off of the slave trade, who profited off of uh, pretty horrifying practices, and then turned that wealth not only into personal wealth, but then, quote-unquote, donated it or gave it to a bunch of places, or perhaps more for our purposes, what they did helped build a sort of sense of place and nationalism or statehood or whatever it may be and people hold on to that. They hold on to that because that give that explains for the people of Bristol why they get to be where they are. It's because of this guy. You know, the other parts of him be damned. It, it, it gives a sense of myth and of belonging. And, I mean, we're guilty of that, too. We were talking uh, yesterday, like, yeah, you know, our, our founding fathers are, you know, they have their sins too. They were slave owners. They did some bad stuff. And yet we don't talk about it as as much or not enough as we should. We are doing more so now. But this is the, like, 
to believe that we are alone in this kind of story. By we, I mean the Americans, that there are tons of people who have these kinds of myths and that they glom onto. And Colston is just one of those examples. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned a a few things um, that I think are really key to this conversation. Um, One is makes us feel included, welcome, makes us feel like it is part of our community. And the, the concept of we and our and who that is, is central to this conversation. Imagine being uh, a person of color. I am not, but I can imagine being a person of color living in Bristol and seeing that and not feeling like that Bristol was designed for me. There are, and we're going to talk about this more, you know, in the second half of the show, but there are other ways to to talk about this history that don't actually glorify what happened, that provide context for these statues and for this history um, and other ways of telling the story that do not literally serve as physical symbols of oppression um, and exploitation. Um, and the the Belgian example this week has been really interesting. I'd like to talk about that for a little bit. Right. So in, in that case, there are statues uh, all over the country, and you can see them a lot in the capital of Brussels, of King Leopold II, who is now most famous internationally for his colonization of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or what's now that territory. He's famous for this because it was, even in the long history of European imperialism, one of the most brutal, maybe the most brutal occupation. I mean, again, you don't want to say the, it's difficult to make this kind of determination, but something like 10 million people died uh, as a result of Leopold's policies of forced labor, the the need to extract resources and ship them for the enrichment of the Belgian Empire, and the way in which he forced Africans to serve at his whims. It's it just like, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. The stories of uh, what King Leopold did and what his his colonial regime did there's, are mind-bogglingly evil. It's, it's very difficult to overstate how terrible those things are. I mean, most famously, if certain, you know, if those in forced labor did not meet the, the rubber quotas that the Belgian government under Leopold wanted, the punishment was to have their hands cut off which um, is horrible in and of itself, and then just also had the counterproductive issue of it made it harder for them to meet quotas down the line, and it just reinforced this this brutal cycle. And this was done at the same time as you had Cecil Rhodes, who's uh, British again, and another person whose statues may be coming down in the UK, you know, was doing the similar exploitative work and imperialist work in, in South Africa and elsewhere, what are now Zimbabwe and Zambia. It is, it is, in, it is honestly, it was his own personal fiefdom. I mean, in, in almost in, in ways that, you know, that other imperialist colonial moves in Africa were, were not. I mean, granted, they belong to the state, like in France, certain countries belong to the state, but like it was Leopold's, it belonged to him. Yeah, he uh, actually he, had it to where it was in his personal name that he owned the Congo Free State. Exactly. And so, like, anything that happened there falls directly on his shoulders. And yet, if you're in Brussels, you'll see his statue in the African History Museum, which is an affront in and of itself. Um, you'll see it You'll see it outside the Royal Palace. You'll see it all over the city. It is no wonder. And in fact, when I was there, tons of people were constantly saying it is crazy that all his statues are just in every place. But it's somewhat understood because the wealth of Belgium that exists today uh, is basically because of that horrifying past. So they've been, so Belgium has been dealing with that really forever. Just to be clear, the reason we're talking about this uh, 
horrific man uh, is because several statues this week of him have been defaced by protesters, part of this kind of broader movement we're seeing. And one in Antwerp was taken down because it was so damaged. The right-wing mayor has basically said he sort of intends to maybe return it at some point, but that they're going to keep it in a museum for now. Uh, and so it's going to be basically just empty for a while. But the the Belgian example is really important, I think, for another reason, which goes to kind of the, the deeper point that, that we were talking about here, which is, you know, how do you reconcile these opposing forces of this is our actual history, if you're Belgian, uh, and it's a horrific history. And there's a, there's a different case in Belgium that I think is really instructive that I, I kind of want to chat about for a second. So Leopold actually created what was essentially a human zoo uh, at one of his private estates. He brought Congolese people, humans, from the Congo and displayed them in a literal human zoo. He invited—it was this, like, propaganda thing where he invited— Belgians to come and look at these Africans. He put them behind a fence and they were forced to live there during the day. At least seven of them died while living there. People would throw candy and peanuts and bananas at them and make monkey sounds at them. It was absolutely horrific. And the site of that thing is now basically the museum. I think, Alex, that you were talking about, the the Royal Museum for Central Africa. It's a literal museum that still exists. And Statues of Leopold are still there. And up until like even the mid-90s, the museum was glorifying Leopold, right? It, it wasn't giving any of the context. Belgians were taught for a very, very long time that this was something good that they did, that that they were they weren't colonizers in the bad sense of the word, as if there's a good sense. You know, they helped the Congolese people. You know, they brought development to, to the Congo and when people decided to start wanting to, you know, especially people who are descendants of, of the Congolese who were exploited, who live in Belgium, looked at this museum and were like, um, I feel like maybe having this museum that has literally no context about the fact that he was a brutal genocide heir who cut off the hands and feet of children if their parents, they decided to try to reform this museum and essentially kind of do a full rebuild and, you know, reconstruction inside to try to, to reconcile with it. But they had a really hard time because there were people who were in their 70s and 80s who were actually still part of, or their, or their parents were, of the colonial mission. And they pushed back. They did not want to be seen as these, like, monsters. Belgians in general, a lot of them did not want to be seen. They didn't want to have that history kind of, they didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to have to face themselves. They didn't want other people to see them that way. And so they kind of made this compromise. So if you go to the museum today, and Alex, you, you've been there, there are still those statues. So they, they made this weird compromise where the statues of Leopold are still there, but they now have like some plaques explaining some of the history. But it's this really, I think, interesting example of like, how do you deal with the history when there are people alive who still feel like that is part of their heritage in a positive way. And I think it's really similar to the, uh, obviously it's a very different situation, but it's similar to, you know, the, the Robert E. Lee and the people who, whose, you know, ancestors fought on the side of the Confederacy. They're like, well, this is my history, you know, and it, and it's hard to face that. You know, meanwhile, there are people who are literally the descendants of the people who are brutalized, who are like, yeah, uh, I don't really care 
uh, if this is your history, because it's mine too, and it's horrific. So maybe let's get rid of this stuff, or at the very least, provide context. It goes to the question of what do we mean when we invoke history, and for what purpose are we invoking it, right? So... Putting up a statue of somebody is generally understood to be, and this is something I was sort of referencing earlier, an honor, right? You you give them a statue because they did something good. You're not putting it's not like there are statues of serial killers out there, right? They just so we can remember that this person did all the murdering, right? It's not a neutral act of just this happened here. It is a statement of value that this person deserves an honored place in the public square. And so to put up a statue or to take it down is to make a statement not just about history, about our heritage, about this happened and and we need to talk about it. It is to make an affirmative statement about how we ought to feel about this in ways that inform the present, right? As, As you were just, you know, that discussion, Jen, just illustrated, older people in Belgium who are part of the colonial enterprise don't want to be remembered as killers. They keep the statue up because it immunizes them and it it immunizes the nation of Belgium, right? It allows Belgians to understand themselves as not being part of a state whose modern incarnation was founded on oppression. And that has implications for the way that you think about contemporary politics on issues like reparations for colonialism or slavery, or even how you should think about, let's say, immigration from former colonies in the context of Belgium, right? If you feel that you owe these people a debt because of the way that you treated them in the past, collectively, not you individually, then maybe there's a much stronger argument for giving them rights to immigrate uh, than there might be otherwise, or, or reasons to give them preference in immigration. These these kind of interplays between our normative understandings of what we ought to do today and what we've done in the past are, are very complicated. But the point is that these fights that seem symbolic actually have real stakes, not just for people walking around and how they see themselves, though I, I don't mean to deny that that's important, but in terms of big deal policy conversations and ways that you understand your nation in contemporary politics. I'll just give a concrete example about Belgium, um, which is shocking that I somehow found a way to make this conversation about soccer. Um, So Every time, every time. (laughs) So if you follow soccer, you'll know this. Um, Belgium's best player is a guy named Aiden Hazard, but arguably their second best player and their main goal scorer is a guy named Romelu Lukaku. By his name, you probably know that he is of Congolese or um, heritage. His parents are from the Congo, and he grew up in Antwerp, where that Leopold statue that Jen mentioned was. It was hard initially for a lot of Belgians, and, and I know this, for, to accept him on the team. The team is now way more integrated than it used to be. And Lukaku's success, one is that he, he keeps scoring, but also the team came third in the last World Cup. And I remember talking to some Belgians at the time when I was there in 2010, before the World Cup, but basically being like, you know, this team's getting good, and it's in part because of this of uh, Lukaku and others. And it was like, yeah, thank goodness for Leopold. Like, I'd heard people say that. They were basically making the case that it's a good deal that finally some players from elsewhere could join the small country of Belgium and make the team better. And that is ridiculous. Oh. Like, that's part of the— Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think and I just need a second to process that. Dear God. Yeah. And I remember—and I mean, I heard that at bars and stuff. And and this is also part—I mean, Belgium is an insanely frac- fractured country. I'm not going to go into the whole history, but it, having the myth of Leopold as, like, is sort of a binding agent for, for that country. And— the fact that that's going away is 
I mean, good. <laughs> I'm not against it, but it will actually cause a problem for the myth of that country. It is allowed Flanders and Wallonia to, um, you know, the, the Dutch speaking part and the French speaking part that are always at each other's throats and trying to separate to somehow stick together. There is a reason why this myth has persisted for so long beyond the, the right points that Jen mentioned of family and whatnot. But like the, and the soccer thing, and I'll, last point is like this is a, and I think this takes us into the sort of our second part of the conversation is that. Europe, shockingly, is a white continent, and they've tons of soccer teams, and the, I have been at the forefront of being sort of symbols of countries in that on that continent's progress. France, perhaps, being the main example, where are tons of players whose you know parents come from uh, Francophone Africa moved to France, and some members joined the French national team, and then they've kind of won, they've won two World Cups since that integration started. Even though you have people like. Um, the Le Pen family that leads the populist right racist charge saying they do not represent France. And so this is actually like a, a part of the conversation um, that, that France and Belgium and a bunch of other countries are starting to lead, which is that you can integrate, you can move Europe's story forward. And that this is that in and of itself, those teams is a reflection of the new societies in those countries. And those new societies in those countries are going after those old myths. And that's kind of what the core of what we're talking about. So that's a that's a perfect place for us to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about these issues of national cohesiveness and national identity and historical memory and the way that they play into uh, contemporary politics and even sometimes relations between states. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the role of historical memory uh, in international politics, particularly as it relates to race, slavery, and colonialism uh, in the wake of the George Floyd protests and how that's created fights over symbolism that aren't, aren't really fights over symbolism so much as they are fights over how countries understand themselves and how people understand their own countries. In this half, we want to talk about different models that countries have developed around the world for doing this kind of historical reckoning and, and how successful they are and how unsuccessful they are and how they play into the ways that countries see their relations with other states and, and even their role on the global stage. So the example that that always comes up in these conversations, uh, and the unavoidable one, I, I think is Germany. Because Germany's self-understanding had to be rebuilt after World War II, after it was responsible for 
all of it for the war, for the Holocaust, uh, the greatest loss of life in one instance in human history. Uh, and this was such a shattering event for the German people that the new, well, especially the West German state and eventually the unified German state, had to come up with some uh, some new self-understanding, a way of seeing itself and talking about itself uh, that took into account the uh, horrific acts that it had just collectively participated in. So Germany has built up uh, this very open and uh, and clear acknowledgement of its role uh, especially in the Holocaust. It's talked about, there are public displays that don't commemorate Nazi generals so much as identify sites of atrocities and help Germans understand and reconcile themselves to their own history. It served as a kind of reverse binding agent where Germans understand themselves as part of uh, a shared state and shared history, not out of national pride in the sense of we are awesome, but a sense of we need to do better than what we've done in the past and we need to be a good country because of what we have done. Um, and I, you know, I've, I have personal experience with this. As, as listeners, longtime listeners might know, my family on my mother's side are Jewish Holocaust survivors uh, from Eastern Europe, but my grandfather escaped from a death march uh, in Germany and hid in a small town in Bavaria. In 2011, my family was invited back to the small town, not that far from Munich, where the, a local historian had done uh, a lot of work understanding the town's role in the Holocaust and World War II, specifically the Holocaust and the treatment of the Jews. And we were invited back as guests for an event where he had written about my grandfather's history and how he hid in a farm, well, really under a dung pile on a farm from Nazi soldiers until he could be liberated by Allied forces. And we didn't know this, right? My family had had no idea until these local historians had uncovered this. And to me, um, you know, as a, as a Jewish person whose family was victimized historically by the German state, it was uh, a way of telling us that Germany was not the country that it had been in the past. And for Germans, it was a way of saying, the Germans in the town, we are honest about what we've done. We were complicit in this. We did this. And now we can come together and heal. And to, and to me, it was just such a powerful statement of how Germany had rebuilt its national identity around this this new conception of what it means to be German. Uh, it's just, just, just quite striking. It's an experience I'll never forget. Yeah, that, Zach, that's a really powerful story. I'm glad you shared that. That's, that's incredible. Um, I think what's interesting more generally here is that this didn't happen overnight, right, in Germany. This, this was a process. This isn't something that 1946 dawns and everyone's like, all right, let's, you know, let's start reckoning with our past. So in 1945, the, the Allied powers who conquered Germany took control and immediately banned the swastika, the Nazi party, the publication of Mein Kampf, literally set out to do this on purpose. Like specific symbols, specific, you know, even the, the, the Heil Hitler salute was banned. So these were specific things that, you know, nowadays in the U.S., it's shocking that NASCAR yesterday just announced that you couldn't carry the Confederate flag at their events, right? And that's like a big news story. Whereas in Germany, like they literally, you know, the Allied powers and then eventually younger generations of Germans, especially particularly in the 1960s, there was this big push to have this reckoning whose, you know, people whose parents had been the generation involved in the Holocaust and the war started to come up being like, I feel like we still haven't reckoned with this. 
So it was this kind of longer process that happened. Um, it was this kind of concept of, of defensive democracy, where you have to kind of boost policies that that can be illiberal, right? Like you're curbing speech in some ways by saying that people can't display certain things. You can't display the swastika. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, but it's it's for a purpose of reconciliation and reckoning. And just specifically to the monument thing, I think this is a really interesting example. Um, our uh, former Vox colleague, Sarah Wildman, who's now at Foreign Policy, wrote a really great piece about this after Charlottesville when we were having this conversation again, you know, in the United States about bringing down Confederate statues. And she explained that, like, on the streets across Germany, there aren't statues to the Nazis, right? Which is what we're talking about in the Confederacy, essentially, the 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 bad guys, all right? Um, what there are instead are these small brass cobblestones that, and I apologize for my German, called Stolperstein. It, German literally means stumbling blocks. And you will be walking down the sidewalk and literally stop and kind of trip over this cobblestone. And if you look down, it has brief biographical details of each man, woman, or child who was deported from that spot, that house, or that block by the Nazi regime. And that is a literal way of commemorating and acknowledging history with a public display that doesn't glorify the perpetrators, but rather makes you stop and think about the victims. And I think that is one of the most powerful kind of ways to think about here in the U.S. um, and, you know, other countries who are reconciling with this is, yes, you absolutely need to, to remember your history, but the way to do that doesn't have to be, and I would say shouldn't be, with a statue of the perpetrators of the violence and then just adding a plaque on the side that says, also, this guy was a slaveholder and a traitor. Monuments to the victims, monuments to the to the fighters who, you know, fought back against these regimes um, and against these, these horrific brutalities. That is the way to, to, to memorialize this, right? The former Gestapo headquarters in Germany was completely razed, and on the land where it once stood, there's now a museum that's called the Topography of Terror that explains in detail the brutal history of the Nazi regime, right? That's how you commemorate these things, not with statues to the perpetrators. I I have some... Uh, I. I'll put a point on this using both a study abroad story and a soccer story. Again, I always find ways to do it. You're nothing uh, is not consistent. Classic, classic Alex episode. <laughs> so in high school, I, I, li- I lived in a place called Carlsfeld, which is just to the northwest of Munich, and also happens to neighbor Dachau, which has one of the most notorious concentration camps from World War II. I visited it, and it, it exists, and it is a monument to the, to the horror of it. But I learned other more sort of um, unique things about the area. So... No one who lives in Carlsfeld or in that sort of northwestern part outside of Munich ever wants to buy a car in Dachau. And the reason is, if you do, your license plate's going to have like a DAC or whatever it is. And no matter where you are in Germany, your car's going to get defaced. And that's because everyone knows about Dachau, and, and it's a way for Germans to also show that like it is not okay to have even it on your license plate to show the physical location where you bought this car. So people, including my host family, went into the city or elsewhere, their, their cars do not have the license plate of Dachau. And a bunch of and those that do, because they might not have had another way to get out of the city to buy a car or whatever, they constantly had their car defaced. The other thing is I went in that study abroad after the 2006 World Cup, which happened to be in Germany. And every German I talked to, and I mean every German I talked to, said they were so excited to have the World Cup, not only because the team is good and they wanted, you know, it's always a, a sense of pride to host it, 
but because it was like the real first time that Germany as a country got to sort of be proud about its country again, like since World War II, because there had been a blanket ban basically on any statement saying along the lines of like, Germany is good or I'm proud to be German. Like politicians would get rocked. Like that was a scandal. If a politician said anything along those lines. For a nation to kind of show like, we're back. We're not Nazis. We're good. We can cheer for our team and we can cheer for our nation openly without anyone sort of worrying and fear was massive to a lot of Germans, including my host family, who are soccer fans and proud Germans. And I think they, they, Germany got to this place for, for many reasons, of course, um, geopolitical, we gave them money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But part of it is because, as Jen rightly noted, the country as a whole decided to to commemorate that period in a different way, to move on, beyond, you know, to purposefully move beyond that memory to try to create something better. And you don't get a World Cup uh, in 2006, and you don't get people to facing Dachau cars and uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, without that sort of national movement to move beyond that that World War II period. If Germany is one model for how to deal with a distant and not so distant history of op- oppression and violence, one that that could be learned from uh, in a lot of these Western countries currently reckoning with their own histories. Uh, Japan is kind of a counterexample in some ways. It's it, I, I don't want to generalize too much, but um, obviously the Japanese Empire during World War II committed its own share of, of truly horrific atrocities, uh, and the current government hasn't done a particularly good job in uh, the way that it's handled them. Uh, this history and and to say it hasn't done a particularly good job in putting it mildly. For example, in 2013. Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, visited a shrine called Yasukuni, which honors Japan's war dead. Now, this might seem uncontroversial, but some of the people who are honored at Yasukuni are also, well, they were war criminals during World War II. And doing so is seen as an act of of not just honoring Japan's history, but of active nationalist reassertion. Abe's government has been widely understood to be a sort of right-wing nationalist government that favors a more aggressive role for Japan in in military affairs and in regional politics. And in this case, Abe is, is exploiting history and has, during his career at various different times, to encourage Japan to take a, a more aggressive nationalist understanding of what it can and should do in East Asia today. And this has not just ruffled the feathers of China, who was the victim of a lot of, of Japan's worst behavior during World War II, but also South Korea, which nominally should be an ally today. In a lot of ways, you could argue is, based on being part of the U.S. shared alliance network there. But uh, during World War II, Japan took women from uh, a number of different countries, including South Korea, and forced them to serve as prostitutes called comfort women, uh, sex slaves, more most accurately. Yeah, that's one hell of a um, euphemism, yeah. During the war. Uh, and uh, this is something that the South Korean government has demanded a more honest and open reckoning with from the Japanese government, and Japan refuses. Right there, they don't want to directly confront their complicity in this atrocity in the way that Germany has. And it is an issue that flares up from time to time in Japanese and South Korean relations and can impede closer political ties and even uh, you know, closer military ties at a significant time, given China's increasingly aggressive regional profile. Yeah, so just to kind of bring this back around— There are actual statues that South Korea has built 
to honor and memorialize the so-called comfort women who were, you know, forced into sex slavery to service Japanese, you know, forces. There are statues in about 50 different parks and public spaces. Um, There's one that's really poignant. Uh, I mean, they're all incredibly poignant. Um, But there's a a small bronze statue known as the Peace Statue. It shows a, a young girl sitting in a chair, staring straight ahead. She's wearing traditional Korean dress. She's barefoot. Her fist is clenched. And next to her is an empty chair. And it it memorializes women, young girls who, I mean, we're talking, you know, 12, 13 in some cases, who were literally kidnapped and forcibly taken to, to service these, you know, Japanese military before and during World War II. And it's a really stunningly beautiful statue. I mean, people will go and put scarves and gloves on her when it's cold out. It's it's where it's located is not an accident. It's located in front of the Japanese embassy in Seoul. Ooh. Wow. Good. I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not subtle and it's not meant to be. And Japan has actively, actively fought and asked and demanded over and over again that South Korea remove these statues from South Korea, from from it, from their own country. Japan has demanded this, and it's this huge, you know, thorn in Japan's side. Japan has taken a long time to even come close to even acknowledging or discussing the fact that this even happened, let alone you know apologizing. South Korean citizens don't care. They they don't care that they're angering the Japanese government. And in a lot of ways, they like that uh, because of this. And they keep putting up more statues. Um, at, at one point, Japan got so mad that it, it even recalled its ambassador from Seoul for a few months. Um, there are now memorials that have started showing up on, on the seats of South Korean city buses. The same kind of figure uh, just, you know, made out of, I, I don't know, plaster or or porcelain, but the same kind of figure of young Korean girls sitting there with their fists clenched now will just pop up on South Korean buses. Um, and Japan is really, really angry about this. And South Korea is rightfully angry about the legacy of it. And this is a huge, huge issue in Japan-South Korean relations. You know, I think it just goes to show the power of, of physical memorials. They are literal symbols. And you can have a choice in your country of what that symbol is going to say. Does it honor the victims? Does it does it memorialize the brutality? Does it explain and, you know, uh, and acknowledge the atrocities? Or does it tell a false myth? Does it tell a false story of, of glory that glosses over brutality and that glorifies supremacy and brutality of, of colonizers? No one's going to improve on that comment, so I think we're going to bring the episode to a close here. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for uh, all the tireless work that she does for the show. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We will be back next week, and we will talk to you then. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. 
Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.